Welcome to episode 273. Has your doctor ever told you your BMI and said, hey, this number is not looking good? Well, interesting to know is that BMI really isn't a useful number to use. And on this episode, I dive into why BMI is a heavily misleading number that doesn't need your attention. We also go beyond that because whilst BMI isn't helpful, neither is being overweight, right? So we talk about making sure you've got the right workout program for your body weight. The religion of scientism. Ooh, what does that mean? We talk about recommended daily intakes for your nutrition, the condition of being under-muscled, blood sugar management with jelly beans, and why I don't encourage people to count calories. There's a lot in this one, but you'll absolutely love it. So let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Welcome to an episode that I did with my good friend, Craig Harper, over on the You Project podcast. Harps is an incredible host with an incredible podcast, as you probably know. But first thing first, in 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. And this episode talks a lot to the way that I think about health, wellness, and body transformation. So if you want a bit of an insight to the overall philosophies that are embedded in what I do, this is a really good episode to get that that hit, that dose of that information. So lots of gold in this one, and we begin now. G'day team, it's Harps, it's Melissa, it's uh, Matthew. I'm going to call him Matthew today, like he's in trouble. Welcome to the U Project. Uh, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever you are, we hope you're great because it's how we roll. I'm going to go backwards and start with you, Maddie. Hi. Hey, how are you, Craig? I'm all right, dude. I heard down the grapevine, that as you told me before we press go, that you are a drummer of 17 years and you got back into the swing of things, first live gig for a couple of years, and you felt a bit clunky. Mm, yeah, I did. I did. It's um, it's been uh, it's been missing out of my life. Music. It's mm. yeah. I didn't really realize how much it filled my happiness cup <laughs> and my motivation to get up in the morning to do work. Um, having that that pleasure, you know, component of life and that joy filled component of life absent for the last few years. But yeah, was lucky enough to be booked at a gig recently, and it definitely felt clunky. <laughs> how um, you've been doing that for seventeen years? Did you say? Yeah. Well, you must be quite good at it. Either that or you're really shit and you just keep being shit for a long time. But um, who's one of the best drummers in the world? Oh, good question. I think my favourite, and I mean, this is like all music you could say about this forever, but for me it's Larnell Lewis. Um, And that's probably a very drummer answer, um, if you know what I mean, as opposed to like somebody that just generally likes music might have a very different, Mm -hmm. they might pick a famous drummer, but in the world of drumming, I mean, Larnell Lewis is extremely famous, extremely talented, polyrhythmic, multi-rhythm guy, which basically means that one hand can move in threes, the next one in seven, both legs in different time signatures. It's just absolutely mind melting. (laughs) Wow. Now, if he's a 10 and I'm a zero, where are you on that scale? (laughs) I'm a zero. He's a 10. All right. All right. Where are you on that scale? I'm going to say six. Wow. That's good, dude. (laughs) That's good. Now, Melissa, a quick quiz for you around drumming. 
<laughs> oh, great. Are you ready? No, I'm a you, negative five on that scale. No, no, no. <laughs> no, this is a, a question that you should know the answer to oh. and probably will. It's about drumming. If you're asking me about a famous drummer, I'm going to be lost, but yeah. Stop, stop trying to hedge yourself <laughs> in there and protect yourself. Just listen. <laughs> <laughs> who's another very well-liked, other than Maddie, who's well-liked, let's go with loved, uh, alumni of the show that is also a drummer. Oh. Is Ooh. also a drummer, also does gigs, also quite skillful. Oh, <clears throat> oh I, wonder yeah. if, I wonder if the listeners at home know. They're all shouting at their fucking radio. Just play some singing. thinking music. They're all <laughs> shouting at their phone going, Melissa. Melissa. No, do you know the only drummer that's coming to mind right now? Mm. <laughs> the one from the Cabri ad. <laughs> you know that Cabri ad that they had? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where they played, I think it was in the air tonight or whatever. That's the only drummer that's coming All into right. my mind now, right now. I'm going to so. give you the answer here without giving you the answer because I want to give you a moment to redeem yourself a little bit. Not totally dissimilar to the bloke on the screen. Oh, come, no, come I haven't on. got it. I haven't got it. Alex, Dr. Alex, neurosurgeon ah, Alex. That was so obvious. How did I miss that? <laughs> He's even spoken about it a couple of times. Sorry, you, Dr. Alex. Back, oh. back to the room of mirrors for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maddie, is drumming, um, I don't know if this is the right word, but I feel like if you were a drummer, drumming would be therapeutic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there's been studies in psychology about um, like uh, uh, symmetry stimulation, that left, right. And you can, when you go to a psychologist, sometimes they can even give you these um, little vibrating pads that you sit on the chair mm. and it vibrates your left leg and then your right leg as you're talking through trauma. So right. um, that's why running is really good for working through problems, drumming, anything that's got a rhythmic pattern that goes le to the left side of your body and the right can help mm. you process some of that stuff. So it is very therapeutic. <laughs> I've been listening to, so Andrew Huberman, this is in a different kind of, but have you heard of binaural beats? Yes. So he talks about 40 hertz being optimal for brain kind of uh, improvement, function, cognitive improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly I haven't used it today. Uh, um, <laughs> but I've been giving that a little bit of a go. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to know everyone, you go, the best one to go is the pure, the one that doesn't have music or nature in the background. It's just the actual, it sounds kind of weird, but, uh, B I N A U R A L before you do it, if you want to do some research, look it up binaural beats, um, quite a bit of science around it quite a bit of science around it, you know, improving mental acuity and cognitive function for a period of time. And then also you can find other different frequencies to help you sleep and get your mind in a fucking whatever it is, a beta mm. state or the whatever, produce more alpha fucking bets. I'm not sure. Um, I should know. <laughs> I should know, but uh, I'm more about the mind than the brain, but incredible. So I've been given that stuff a go and I think it works. Yeah, I've definitely used it for study, um, but I find myself usually going towards the nature sounds with no music, no piano or anything like that, right. just literally yeah. an eight-hour recording of the forest. <laughs> yeah, I just have a frog beside my bed in a box <laughs> called Kevin, and uh, every now and then he nods off, I've got to hit the box. Come on, you little fuck, start croaking. Um, <laughs> which is, it's a tough gig for him, but he's only got to do it yes. eight hours out of 24. 
Yeah, that's a good perspective. Yeah, I mean, like, everyone's got to have a job, Kev. And here you go, here's some more grass and a leaf to sit on. You're welcome. I'm an equal opportunity frog employer. That's how I roll. Uh, So today we were going to talk about not frogs, not binaural beats, and not drumming and not Dr. Alex. We were going to talk about, among other things, BMI. Um, Why did you want to talk about that? Well, I was really, I'm sort of passionate about all of these metrics and tools that are thrust upon people as, um, yeah, measurement devices that fundamentally or scientifically make some sense and are useful in a lab setting or in a data setting. But when applied to the individual's journey of progression, usually just cause more of the same problem because it causes people to feel shit about themselves. Not to mention BMI specifically is what the Western world's health system is run on. Um, And BMI was strictly designed not to be used in an individual setting. So a lot of people talk about their health, whether they're health practitioners or not, um, about the state of their body, the state of their um, body fat situation in regards to BMI. And it's just far too simple a, a calculation to remotely be applicable to or applicable to yeah anyone really particularly women who have you know hips and boobs and different body shapes and 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 the same for men like a lot of athletes um you know men and women are considered obese or morbidly obese because they're just so ripped (laughs) yeah well i've got a three kilo nose so that throws all the fucking metrics out yeah it's Um, so out of whack (laughs) yeah i mean that's not fair so it's about 25 yeah. <laughs> but, but you make a good point um pursuant to that point uh your honor i i had a meeting and she won't mind me saying because we don't know who it is but i had a meeting some the other day with uh a lady you know who you are lady shout out to you um and got got a fair bit of weight to lose and um we were talking about you know all this stuff weight and height and you know, just general stuff. And, and she's been with a trainer who's essentially, I won't elaborate too much because I don't want anyone to figure out who the person is, but really putting her through a workout that's borderline fucking useless, right? It's not what that body or that person needs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can go around in circles and you go, oh, well, you're this tall and you're this old and so therefore you shouldn't weigh this or you should have this many calories. And and um, and she said to me, oh, isn't the, well, I can say, I can say something, isn't that, so literally she was going and her trainer was putting her on a bike for half the time and a rower for half the time and then saying that'll be ka-ching, ka-ching, thanks very much. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah. That's a shit investment. And I said, yeah. um, okay. And then we, you know, there's lots of layers and lots of variables, as you know, Maddie, as well as me or better, especially with some things. And so I said, look, this is what I want you to do for 28 days. And she's got amazingly, uh, and I mean that with respect, but she even said the same. She's got no medical conditions. She's got no injuries. I'm like, well, that's great. you got awesome genetics, but you can't rely on that forever. I said, what I want you to do is I want you to walk for 60 minutes a day. That's it. Um, and if you do 23-minute walks or four 15-minute walks or six 10-minute walks, doesn't matter. Just do 60 minutes a day. Um, and she's like, is that better than the rower? Or is that better? I go, 
that is so much better. She's like, why? And I said, thanks for asking. I said, because I won't say the weight, but it's a lot, lot more than me. And I said, because you are moving that. I said to her, look, imagine if you and I went for a two kilometer walk and we walked at the same pace and the same distance. And then we got back. I said, your energy expenditure, you would have in layman's terms burned somewhere around 60 to 70% more calories, maybe more than me doing the same thing at the same speed on the same day in the same situation. So the benefit in inverted commas to you is far greater than to me, although you're doing the same thing because you've got to carry that. And she was stunned at that. And I said, and with your food, because her food's not terrible. She just eats too much. I said, so keep eating what you're eating, but halve it, <laughs> right? You know, and she's like, oh, that's simple. I go, yeah, this shit does not need to be complicated. And we're trying to figure out how your body will respond to something. Now, clearly, I'm not a dietitian. I'm not a nutritionist like you. Don't claim to be. But what I know is if somebody's carrying lots and lots of excess kilos, um, reducing intake in general terms probably ain't a terrible thing. Moving more, probably not a terrible thing. And so I think that sometimes with the RDIs and BMI and height weight charts and all the other recommendations, we can, one, rely on things that really are unreliable and two, make shit way harder than it needs to be. Oh, I totally agree. And the thing too is that I think in this data centric world that we're in now that, you know, the, the house of scientism has projected upon us all that we get. <laughs> Sounds like up. a church. I, I think <laughs> back ways, to the house of scientism on Maddie Lansdowne. Well, I definitely think that. And I think we've seen a lot of that in the last few years is that, you know, there's one idea and that's the idea that should be believed. And, and if we, we extrapolate that out to all other ideas, BMI is one of those things. Um, and a lot of data centric ideas miss the entire point of the fact that the human is having a human, having a human experience, which is extremely complex. And what the numbers show might not represent reality because that data set is based on an average of a collective. Um, and so it's like the statistics are important to make decisions on groups of people and sometimes an individual in very sort of unique, you know, uh, constructed uh, dynamics. But yeah, a lot of the numbers to people, whether it be calories, whether it be the weight on the scales, whether it be their BMI, um, you know, is not reflective of what is important for them. And you could just solve the question or ask a better question uh, by saying, how does that make you feel? Yeah. You know, and it's got nothing to do with data. Um, and, and so, and it's like that question, is it better than the rower? Well, it's like, where do you feel better? Where yeah. do you feel like you're functioning better? Where do you feel like your body moves better? Um, you know, it's like, oh, but I was told by somebody who I was convinced is smarter than me in this area. Therefore, I'm, I'm unintelligent in this area and my intuition means nothing. So I have to, yeah, outsource all of that, those parts of myself to people that know better. When mm. if we asked in all those areas of life, does that make you feel good? The answer might be no, I hate mm. it. <laughs> and also you make a really good point. Is the rower better than walking or vice versa? Well, it depends. Yeah. It depends. What, what are your goals? Tell me about Like for some people, walking isn't an option. So in that case, rower, good, if they can do it. For some people, impact stuff, no good. For some people, they want to become great rowers. Well, don't, definitely don't walk. 
or don't <laughs> yeah, only bro. walk. You know, don't make that your focus. Make if your goal is to become a great rower or a better rower or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think um, also, you know, like the for for people who want to figure out uh, their BMI. So BMI stands for body mass index. So if people want to do this just as a an experiment, nothing more. Mm-hmm. Maddie, correct me if I fuck this up, but the the equation is your height in kilograms divided by sorry your weight in kilograms your weight in kilograms height in kilograms hmm, I'm a hundred kilograms tall your weight <laughs> in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared so let me give you a really easy to understand example so let's say I am two meters tall and I weigh a hundred kilos. So 100 kilos is my weight over the top of two meters squared, which is four. So 100 divided by four is 25. So my BMI would be 25, Mm -hmm. right? So for me, that's 1.78 squared divided by 86 comes out to around 28 or nine, which puts me in the upper end of the overweight category and terrifyingly close to being obese. Yeah. Uh, and I think most of you know I'm not obese and I certainly don't look overweight. But according to a BMI chart, I am not only overweight, I'm well and truly overweight. So unpack that for us, Maddie. Certainly can. Well, I guess as we mentioned before, it just doesn't take into enough variables like height and weight. What is that weight made up of? Um, And in your case, it's obviously made up of more muscle. Um, And that's the case with a lot of athletes. A lot of athletes are the same, same situation. They fall into the overweight or obese category because they have so much muscle on their body. Mm. Um, And it also doesn't factor in uh, bone structure. Now I know there's a lot of people that say, Oh, I'm just big boned um, as a way to explain in their body shape most people are not big boned it's it's not very common to be big boned but in the case for women that have wider hips and bigger pelvises like that is an actual thing right and so again if we're measuring this height and weight it's not factoring in that you know um, a woman from sweden's pelvis is half the size of somebody that's african-american right mm-hmm. um which then adds more muscle and also more body fat. And, and I guess as well that, you know, there's a percentage of body fat that is meant to be there. Um, you know, we would die if we were 0% body fat. And I, I did my BMI too, before I jumped on and I'm, I'm in the overweight category as well. Um, and you know, I mean, lockdown hasn't been kind to me, but I'm definitely not overweight. (laughs) No, you're definitely not overweight. You good looking bastard. Um, I feel like the plural of pelvis should be pelvi, you know, pelvis (laughs) is, (laughs) <laughs> Fucking pelvises. What a clumsy word. It is, isn't it? Uh, on a completely different note, what's the plural of Lexus? I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> I'm guessing it's Lexi then. <laughs> it should be Lexi. It's Lexuses. <laughs> oh, that's gross. When I'm the boss of the world, it, it's going to be Pelvi and Lexi. You're that's welcome, you're everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's going to be my first order of business. All right, everybody, eyes to me, the word pelvis, okay? One pelvis, two pelvi. You're welcome. The end. Now, the end. Lexus. <laughs> That's why clearly I'm not the boss of anything and <laughs> Melissa is the boss of me. Talk to us about the good and the bad uh, or, or your thoughts around recommended daily intakes. Good question. Well, I think I think what happens is 
uh, with when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to guidelines or information about everything is that everybody wants it simple and just straight up. And of course, so do I, but the reality is when we're in a, a world of, you know, heading towards what eight, 9 billion people is that by the time we get to how much nutrition, the government advises for their population to stay functional, there is so many steps, um, food policy, food security, um, the, the weather on the other side of the planet and how that's going to affect the, the production here and in different countries. And so a lot of um, like natural health professionals, all health professionals obviously want to promote the healthiest possible version um, of, of, an, of the person that's in front of you. And, and me too, like everyone that I talk to, we're going for optimal health. Yeah. Like we're not going like just to not die. Like we want to, <laughs> we want to actually thrive. We don't want to be, you know, on medication for the last 30 years of our life, slowly going out the back door. Like we want to really thrive. And so on an individual level, it's really easy to talk about what's right for the individual. Let's maximize the protein intake, which, you know, and I would say that the protein intake RDIs, uh, probably a third or half of what they should be. But when we think about um, a country. Hang on, hang on. Did you say the protein RDIs are about a half or a third of what they should be? Yes. Right. Yes. So the current RDI, I think, correct me again, is 0.8 grams of yep. protein per kilo of body weight. So let me unpack that, everyone. So if you weigh, let's say, 70 kilos, 70 times 0.8 is 56. 56, what would, sorry, keep going in a minute, but just tell us what, what would 56 grams of protein look like? 56 grams of protein would look like a 300 gram steak um, or maybe a little bit more, uh, depending how marbled it was with fat. It might look like 150 to 200 gram chicken breast because um, obviously the entire thing is not made up of just protein. So yep. there's obviously other macro and micronutrients in there, um, which if that was what you were doing, you would only eat protein once a day at mm. one meal to hit mm. the, whereas mm. I very much think that um, from the people I've worked with and my own health and body is that we need a, approximately 30 to 50 grams of protein per meal um, in order to to keep the system running because um, we can't thrive on, well, our body is not made out of carbs. It's, it's made out of um, like all the micronutrients that we get from vegetables and carbohydrates have got great and huge utility, but the physical mass of our existence is made from proteins and amino acids and fat. Mm. Um, there's no, there's no physical component of the body that is a carbohydrate. Um, so we need to be putting that, that those two fuel sources in at each time we eat. Um, mm. it's not to say that's not carb shaming or demonizing that like I eat vegetables. I plan Bloody to cook up carb shamer. <laughs> you carb I shamer. To, I plan to cook up a heap of veggies after this interview, but yeah, um, they're not real carbs. <laughs> get real, dude. Go and get right. yourself. Go and get a yourself a, a black and bagel, <laughs> or and a pizza and some chips, and then you're on board. All right, sign me up. <laughs> so yeah, I think that yeah, people need to be putting protein in far more often. I mean, I think another way to look at like the obesity problem or being overweight is that it, you know, the it's kind of glass half empty. Another way is like that we're all just under muscled, um, and if we go through a process of of trying to lose weight 
without also focusing on building muscle, the body all will suffer as we get older. And you see, um, as people get elderly, you know, their bums disappear, all the muscles they haven't used for years just kind of disappear off their body. Um, and muscle mass and your, your lean muscle is literally an endocrine organ. So we need to supply that muscle with its fuel source. Um, and also adding in weights, weight training and resistance training, irrelevant of age, um, irrelevant of disease, health status, like anything you can do to put your muscles and bones under pressure. But if we put our body under pressure, which many people do through stressful lives, through overwhelming and not enough sleep, overwhelming children and all the things, we're not putting enough fuel in to sustain that level of pressure on our body, which is not just lifting weights, but all of the hormonal imbalances that come from that. So if we go back to the plate and the protein, if we're not fueling this busy, chaotic, messy life with enough fuel, we have, we have to pay a price. And that mm -hmm. price either comes in supplying the correct amount of nutrition or storing body fat from incorrect nutrition or, uh, dysregulated hormones, loss of cycle, um, you know, diseases later on in life. And it slowly sort of snowballs out of control. I love that term under muscled. Can you believe that in all my years, I've never heard anyone say under muscled. You've and heard it. I, I know there's a lot of other terms for that, but I quite like that. Um, I'm people that follow me on social media know that I'm always banging on about anyone who's 45 plus really anyone, mm -hmm. but especially people kind of maybe 40, even 45 plus mm -hmm. <clears throat> should be, lifting weights, if not lifting weights, doing some form of strength training, resistance training, you know, so that we are maintaining and or building strength, uh, building muscle, remaining functional. And, and, you know, sarcopenia is muscle wasting, usually muscle wasting in the elderly it's associated with. And, and there's this, you know, we always hear this, oh, from 40, you lose about 1% of your muscle mass a year. But you know what I hate? They never go unless you don't. Yeah. Cause, cause, <laughs> oh, hang on. Unless you don't. Hey, you fucking idiots. How about saying, oh, if you sit on your ass and you don't train and you don't stimulate your muscles and you don't work out and you don't eat well, and you just let yourself deteriorate, then you'll lose about one percent. Cool. That's fine. But say the whole fucking sentence, right? So don't just go, this is predetermined. This is a mandate from God in her wisdom. See what I did there? Kept everyone happy. Well played. Um, yeah, thank you. I'll be here every Tuesday. Um, like that that's the thing is you don't have to lose them. You can put on a fucking 1%, 2 3% a year of muscle. Guess what? Yeah. Fuck age. And, yes, of course, there's an inevitability of ageing that we can't change that age will happen, chronological age, of course, that we can't flex that. But the rate at which we age physiologically, we can, we definitely can impact and we can, we can change the date of when we, in inverted commas, get old. Like I know people that are eight years younger than me that are 50, they're old. They're old. I've met them. I've talked to them. I've seen them walk. I've seen them get out of a chair in a car. I'm like, fuck, dude, you're old. You're old. I'm not going to be old for 20 years. I promise yeah. you, I'm not going to be old. Fuck that. I might die before that. I hope I don't. Melissa, have you done my will yet? She hates it when I say that. Because uh, <laughs> when you say she thinks it'll happen, 
That's okay. I'll leave the motorbikes to you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like we can literally with so many of these things manipulate everything from how much muscle we have to uh, you spoke really we're talking about health span on top of lifespan really, aren't we? Yeah, like there's absolutely. so much in our control that we don't control because we don't know. And that's why education is so fucking important, Maddie. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Well, and this, this kind of comes back to what we said at the start, which is like the medical model doesn't give you the full sentence. Yes. It doesn't, it, and, and we're also driven primarily by social factors, the social determinants of health, which mean that if our doctor says this and we go home or we go to our, hang out with friends and everybody kind of looks the same and the doctor says, oh, I'm about the weight that I'm meant to be for this age. It's not because that's a healthy prediction of your weight. It's because the way society has moved uh, has gone in an unhealthy direction. And now that's normal. And then we're mistakenly categorizing that normal as where I'm meant to be. Mm. And it's not where you're meant to be. That's where you end up if mm. you don't do what's good for you. Right. Mm. Um, and there's lots of reasons why people end up in that situation. Um, but normalizing unhealthy situations, um, in order to make people feel like they're meant to be somewhere sets them up to be in the next spot, which is like, sign up for your disease, cancer, yeah. diabetes, you know, whatever it might be, Alzheimer's. And now we're in a society where everyone's just like, oh, I guess when I get to about 60, I probably should put the timer on for when I get my disease. Which one will I get? It's a bit of a lottery. Like, yeah. and that is not normal. Well, it shouldn't be normal. It's common. It shouldn't be normal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so just um, for people who are meeting you for the first time or maybe have heard you once or twice but don't. So you're a scientist, researcher, nutritionist, educator, speaker, all that. Do you, I think the answer to this is no, but correct me if I'm wrong. So you don't prescribe to what we would call a particular nutritional philosophy, i.e., for example, you know, Mediterranean or paleo or carnivore. Um, you're just more about what works. You're just more about the science and research, right? You, you're not an advocate for any particular, uh, <laughs> this is not the right word, but brand. It's almost like they're brands. 
Yeah, I'm, well, I've got, it's, that's kind of a two-tiered answer. So um, I believe that most people will do well utilizing at the right times a lower carbohydrate diet. And that's because most people um, uh, have had extremely high refined sugar and carbohydrate lifestyles. However, when I say low carb, I always emphasize it's definitely not no carb. Mm. Um, And particularly for women, like so incredibly important to get the micronutrients from carbohydrate vegetables in the diet. And and I would say the same for many men. Um, And a lot of people just like they get vegan wrong. A lot of people get keto wrong, you know, Mm. which is extreme on the other end is that Mm. for the, for the first month or even two weeks, they're like, Oh, this is amazing. I went to the farmer's market and then I went here and then I ordered some stuff online. And, and then in a few, like a few weeks or a month or two, they're like, Oh, I can't be bothered doing all the shit I need to do to actually be healthy on this diet. So the keto people are like bacon and cheese life. And then the vegans are like Oreos. Mm. Um, And so so we're in a situation where those like if done correctly, like they could probably be great diets. Um, but I think, yeah, generally speaking, low carb, but the, the fundamental thing for me is jerf, just eat real food. You will move most of your health challenges in the right direction. If not all of them by just making that one massive change, never eat anything that didn't come from a farm. Jerf. That's hilarious. Just eat that, real food. That could be. That could be, I was going to call the episode under-muscled. <laughs> it now could be jerf, or it could be under-muscled in brackets jerf, or it could be slash jerf. <laughs> and the interesting thing about, like, when we talk about, I won't do it, you do it, just explain to people, when we talk about micros and macros, mm-hmm. what does that mean? I mean, I know half our audience, 70% of our audience know, but for the 30% who are going, what does that actually mean, micros and macros? What are we talking about? Yeah, sure. So macronutrients, there's three of them. Uh, There's your protein, your fats, um, or lipids, you can call them, um, and your carbohydrates. And so they provide, well, the carbohydrates particularly, um, and fats provide a fuel source, uh, and amino acids are the building blocks of the parts of your body, whereas micronutrients come as part of those macronutrients. So you can get them in supplements separate, obviously, but um, they come as their little molecules or metals or um, compounds that are embedded in the life form that is the plant that is the kale that that was the the cow um, and they provide different tools for your metabolism your immune system um, your gut health and the the physical structure and function of your body mm. and the interesting thing about those three macros fat protein carbohydrate is that your body can't create protein and it can't create fat but it can create carbohydrate so yeah Correct me if I fuck this up. It's been about 20 years, but there's a thing called gluconeogenesis, which is your body's ability to convert non-carbohydrate stuff to carbohydrate. Yeah, no, you bang on. And and that's one of the interesting things about the, again, going back to ragging on the medical model, but um, is that the idea of blood sugar management. It's like if your blood sugar dips, get a jelly bean. Like what did they do for the first million years of human <laughs> evolution? It's like... That's so funny. Yeah, it's but I think yeah, it's blood sugar management is is the goal, but your that that idea focuses on regulating it at the wrong end of the spectrum. It's saying yes. keep it up. Um and the, the reality is that when your blood sugar dips is that yeah, you you use gluconeogenesis in the liver to convert your body fat stores um and in extreme cases actually you can convert amino acids into sugar as well, but there is a function in the body to do that. You're right. Mm. I remember, um, I need to be really careful with the right term here, but I remember reading years ago about 
um, I think we used to call them Eskimos. I think are they called Inuit now? Yes, Inuit yeah. people. Yep. Um, who only eat for a lot of the year, or back in the day anyway, they only ate fat and protein, and mainly fat. Mm-hmm. Like they never had because they live in the fucking snow and ice, yes. and all they eat is like seal and I don't know whale blubber. Yeah, like more seal. <laughs> Bigger seals and smaller seals. No, fuck, and seal soup and seal sandwich and, oh, look, a seal souffle. Fuck. Um, oh, not more seal again. Um, but, yeah, that was that. Well, But also our brain needs carbohydrate to work and our eyesight doesn't work if we never get cut. We, our, we go blind without carbs eventually. Um, and, and for a long time they're like, well, how come they're not dying and their brain's not shriveling? Well, it's because they created their own glucose. They created their own kind of fuel for the brain and the eyes and other things. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got people now that have been on keto and carnivore diets for decades, um, Mm. you know, and I mean, the the big movement's been happening in the last few years, but um, yeah, there are people that absolutely thrive on these diets. And I don't think, I think the way that we would have lived in nature generally is how we should go generally. Um, But like a lot of the times we would have gone in these cycles of like this, all that is available at this time is the hunt. So we're all eating meat for the next month or we're, we're somewhere on the Savannah where there's lots of Buffalo. So for the next few months, we're going to eat just Buffalo. And then we would have had to move with oh, the season. Imagine, and we, imagine those teenage kids. Oh, fuck mom, not Buffalo again. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we would have gone from that carnivorous period into like the winters would have come, the animals might've migrated and then we might only have different types of vegetables available in a different area. And I think that, um, yeah, these extreme diets that we've got now, if totally removing the emotional eating, the the binge eating stuff that gets triggered by these extreme, extreme diets, if we're being totally practical, I think, yeah, they need to be cyclical and only for short periods of time with wholesome jerf meals being the the centerpiece. Alyssa, can you Google for me? Can you find out how long have humans been eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Like the, in the kind of modern construct of breakfast and then lunch. Because I feel like, Maddie, while Melissa looks that up, I feel like for the most of the evolutionary timeline that that wasn't a thing. Looks like the 17th century. Right. That working lunch started. So 17th, 18th century. Okay. Interestingly, too, in the 17th century, that was when um, that was when it became a mark of status for women to actually have extra body weight because it showed that the family was wealthy. Yeah. So attractive woman was more curvaceous. And then in the next century, it went the other way because it was it was a display of wealth that the man had enough money that uh, the woman didn't have to do anything, basically, even eat. <laughs> wow. It's so... So I want to ask you a couple of just random things because these are things that have kind of slid through my consciousness and and kind of little thought bubbles over the years. Mm-hmm. What's the difference if I eat six meals a day of, let's say, 400 calories mm-hmm. or I eat three meals a day of 800 calories? Good. What? Yeah. Yeah, I'm like I've got a few thoughts around that, but I know fuck all. So six, so same calories. In other words, six meals ending up equaling the same amount of uh, energy, micros, mm-hmm. macros. So the exact same food, 
Yep. Nothing different, same food, but just divided into six, not three. Yep. Um, so when you're eating more often, well, firstly, it depends on your goal, because if you're an athlete and you're looking to build muscle and perpetually put uh, fuel into the muscles to make them bigger, then you probably want to eat more often. Um, and and I've been actually trying to do that in the last year or so is eat more often to get a bit bigger. Um, and so it first depends on your goal, but in a more general sense, if we talk about most people and meal frequency, um, whenever you eat, basically you switch the gut on the system is on. Um, and so you essentially take resources away from other parts of the body in order to digest food, in order to absorb that food, process it through the liver and get it distributed where it needs to go. And in many instances, if we're um, including uh, carbohydrates, whether they be from particular types of vegetables or whether they be from pizza, chocolate, you know, any type of bag of box or a can type food. Um, then we, we essentially spike our blood sugar and our insulin goes with it. So the insulin being the, the hormone that stores that sugar into our fat stores, because if it sugars in our blood too long, it becomes toxic to the point that it can cause a coma. So, um, so insulin's a good thing. Blood sugar is a good thing, but if we get that going up and down too much and people end up on the roller coaster that many people are on of eat, those carbohydrates in the morning, like cereal. And then by two hours later, they're hungry again because they're, and they're having an energy crash because they're insulin up, blood sugar up. It's been taken out of the blood. So they're down. They need to do it again. Need to do it again. And so we re repeat that through the, the course of the day. So, I mean, it, depending on that goal, again, if you're trying to build your body in a really healthy way, um, you might eat lower carb throughout the day and eat more meals. But if you're looking to lose weight or improve your gut health, then you might just uh, you might eat less meals with larger quantities and pick the time of the day and the types of carbohydrates that you use in order to not sh begin that insulin sugar roller coaster. All right. Now I'm going to throw you under the bus. Uh, no, oh, shit. Uh, no, no, no. So, and I, by the way, folks, this is a conversation, not a prescription, not a recommendation. Totally. Um, what am I going to lose weight, more weight on? So if I eat 1,200 calories at 7 a.m. and 1,200 calories at 7 p.m. Mm -hmm. and I do that consistently or I start eating at 6 and every three hours I have 400 calories until my six meals are done, mm -hmm. what, what's going to be or will it be much of a muchness? Well, it'll be dependent on the individual because depending on the diet history, um, that that person's been through their body or their metabolism might be responsive to different things. Um, and I think as well for almost everyone, 1200 calorie diets, um, mess them up emotionally. Like they're driven, they're stuck in hunger. No, I said 1200 morning, 1200 night. Oh, so we're eating 2400. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we're eating enough food. This is good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so in that case, if we're eating enough food and making sure we're getting enough food in, then, in regards to the blood sugar conversation and the gut health conversation, having them in a smaller window of time is going to be more generally more beneficial. However, that's not always optimal for everybody. And you need to move to that position uh, progressively over time because you, you don't want to make an extreme change, shock your body, shock your metabolism um, and, and use willpower to try and get through those really hungry mornings that you're not used to. You need to really move that needle slowly. So, I mean, based solely on, like stats and science, I would say the smaller window of time um, that you are eating within, the better. Um, however, there's also like, as with everything, there's there's too much, right? Um, so if you have all 2,400 calories in one meal, as we know from um, 
uh, absorption research is that you really only absorb about 25 to 40 grams of protein per meal because the gut's got loads of work to do. And because it can't, it fills up all the receptors and absorbs them and, and they get totally saturated. So you can't absorb any more. So I'm also not a huge advocate for the one meal a day idea long-term because yes, you might be physically putting all the right nutrition into your face, but you're not getting it all into your gut uh, because, and lots of it ends up going out the back door. So, um, so there's a balance, there's a balance somewhere in there. That's going to look different for everyone. All right. Hypothetical. I'm loving it. So we've got two sisters. Uh, We've got Melissa and she's an athlete. She trains three hours a day. Clearly have a look at her. She's a fine specimen three hours a day. She's a, she's a a fucking, she's a registered weapon. She's a beast three hours a day. She's a, I can't say what I was going to say. Yeah. All right. And she's also got a twin sister who's same height and give or take weight who does none of that. Mm Mm-hmm. And I know this is just guess. This is a conversation. I don't expect a finite answer. How much more protein does Melissa need than her lazy sister? Good question. Well, that it's a fucking lazy sister. <laughs> um, well, I would say that there's not a huge difference. Um, I mean, there, there will be if um, athlete is trying to build, um, right. but I would say that that both of them need the same because. When you're physically active, um, your requirement for protein uh, begins to be an automated process because you, you're the, the intensity of your training triggers that have to happen. So on your off days, you often need more protein to kickstart the uh, protein synthesis because the, you don't have the intense activity. So somebody that's not actually active probably needs more um, mm-hmm. in their meals because they're not encouraging protein synthesis by physical movement. Um, so, so for that reason, I would generally say based on just this conversation is that approximately the same amount. I mean, the a- athlete is almost certainly going to need more, but without more details and, you know, are they weightlifting, are they running yeah. a marathon, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, but yeah. And, and if the, you know, overweight sister, that's not doing anything, even if she just removed the carbs and replaced I didn't the say same- she was overweight. Stop being so judgmental. She's lovely. She's just lazy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the other lazy sister, um, if she, if she's, um, if she all she did was just replace the calories she's eating and keep in mind, I never count calories for myself or for any client I've ever worked with. Mm. Um, I think it messes people up in their head more than anything, but if we were to replace the same amount of calories with protein, she would see positive results in, in her body. It's not an answer for the whole journey, but even if she just made that one step, stayed on the couch, did nothing and replaced more, put more protein in and just took some of the carbohydrates out. She would see movement in the scales and in the, and her gut health and a few other things. Yeah, I love it. All right, so let's continue on with that thread of I never count calories or use them with my clients. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Like, what's the alternative? Well, and I'm my- sure it's not one thing; it's many. But yeah, well, there's always you know all answers come with the caveat that you know it's individualized. But my, I pose this question: as technology and the capacity to track nutrition and calories has gotten better, has the world gotten bigger or smaller? Mm. It's that simple, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Totally. So the, the more technology, it's back to the data conversation. The more data we get, we get seem to get caught up in the apps and the numbers and the tracking and the information and forget what's actually happening in material reality. And, and I think um, the biologist in me always defaults to humans have been around, depending on your belief system, for thousands, millions of years, a very long time. Um, and in the course of one life, our life, our individual life, We've managed to go from, you know, being born into a world where it all should have been totally easy and was forever mm. until the last hundred or 200 years. And so for me, it's just like, we're animals. Let's just eat like animals eat. Animals don't have any inclination to overeat unless we feed them pet food that humans made because we're idiots. Um, and so, yeah. So true. Yeah. You don't see fat animals and I've said that before. In nature, there's no fat animals unless they're meant to be fat for survival. Yeah, totally. So it's the same thing. So I believe that most people will find their natural food intake, um, what feels good for them. And of course, they might need some guidance, but going back to trusting your body, trusting your intuition, um, we don't need to count calories. And then there's the whole conversation that depending on the study you look at, I, I really don't have great faith in the calorie counting model. Like the, the body is so incredibly complex and diverse. And when they measure how many um, calories are in something, they're just measure, measuring the amount of heat that it produces when it's been lit on fire. Yes. That it couldn't remotely be related to the millions of metabolic reactions that need to happen. Like obviously you can slowly figure it out, but I think unless you're going on stage or you're an athlete, Nobody else really needs to track calories. It might be a good awareness exercise, but know that that awareness comes with a big approximations. Like this approximately has this in it. Um, so yeah, I think happy, healthy lives are lived without having to track anything. And also, I mean, the fact that your energy needs, how many calories you need, vary sometimes yeah. wildly. You might need 2,000 on Monday to break even and 4,000 on Tuesday to break even. Same person in the same body in the same amount of time. But you're just yeah. doing a lot of different stuff. You're expending more energy or burning more cal calories as we colloquially phrase it. Well, so and, there's, and there's not like, it's not like at midnight every night, um, somebody in your brain or your body gets up and goes, oh, we're back to zero. Like, yeah. you know, there's not a, there's not a moment every day where it's like, oh, I'm back to zero. Like I, I well, consumed food yesterday. Not that you're aware of. I mean, maybe that happens. <laughs> maybe. Um, talk to us about hunger versus cravings. Cause I feel like, cause I'm an ex fat kid uh, with a great capacity to lie to myself and others about my eating behaviors. Mm-hmm. I feel I've rationalized a lot of um, cravings into hunger and eaten lots of shit I shouldn't have eaten. I think it's in check these days, but for a lot of my life it wasn't because I always, oh, I'm so hungry. It's like, mm, are you? Yeah. Well, I guess the simple answer is that hunger comes from your stomach. Cravings come from your head um, because of an attachment or a story to a particular type of food. Um, and that's why I'm, you know, different smells or different situations, or if you've got a cycle or a habit that you've been in, just like the morning coffee, right? A lot of the time people don't actually feel like a coffee. It's just, I've done that for 20 years. So that's the routine. Um, and so we don't actually, it's not in the conscious awareness. So hunger is actually when the body obviously is requiring nutrition in order to keep itself 
at a, at a good enough functioning level that it can survive and do everything you need. And, and that's the thing that the, the human body was designed to survive and not thrive. Um, it's, it's designed to protect itself at all possible costs. But in this privileged world that we've got, we've got all these types of foods that we can crave. Um, we become attached to these types of foods, both emotionally and physically, because sugar addiction is a real thing. But um, it's more emotionally. We've attached comfort, stories, um, you know, nurturing, sadness, happiness to a particular set of foods. And so usually in my experience, when a craving comes up, it's usually coming from a really emotional place or a place that we think I need that to produce X, Y, Z result. Whereas a lot of people don't think about that with hunger and they have a different thought process, which is, I just need to eat. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's much, a much more, it's back to that more primal animalistic thing. Like I need food so that this vessel survives another day. Uh, whereas a craving is like, I need this food to solve a particular problem for me. It might not be that conscious. Um, but the place to start is, is analyzing your cravings and being like, why do I want that? I've definitely eaten enough food today, or mm. I just had a meal. Why am I swinging on the door of the fridge? Mm. Um, and there's usually a set of emotions there that can explain the craving. And also I think a big part of it in 2022, not for everyone, but for me, definitely for me and for a lot of people I know, is accessibility. We have almost unlimited access to anything. I mean, I literally have within, okay, within, I have a a mini supermarket 80 metres from my driveway. I have another one 400 metres in the other direction. Within 500 metres, there are 15 cafes of my 500 metres of my house. There's a Red Rooster 100 metres away. There's multiple restaurants. Like the the, the barriers to entry, in inverted commas, are zero for me. Like yeah. I can get anything I want. And then there's a 7-Eleven that's open 24 hours, 100 metres away. I can get anything I want almost any time I want. Um, it's a good thing I have a modicum of self-control. Well, and going back to the human brain stuff is that with our dopamine pathways, which is what drives us to to eat, to hunt, to procreate, to have sex, is that we're in this world where we have all of these food options that produce a dopamine response. So they make us feel happy, loved, cared for, comforted. And because there is no barrier to entry, um, it's we end up in this dopamine spiral uh, mm. because all of those dopamine producing activities for much of human existence were a huge risk to produce a dopamine hit. I have yeah. to hunt, you know, the buffalo. I have to, um, you know, I have to do what's necessary to convince the woman to procreate with me. You know, I have yes. to, there's a dating process. Whereas, like, whether it be sex and porn, whether it be sugar and Seven uh, Eleven, you know, all of these things, there's no risk or emotional or physical investment to produce the dopamine response. So mm. the brain has this default for like, oh, cravings, just respond to them with no challenge whatsoever, and go and get the food because dealing with the problem is a challenge and that's unappealing. Yeah. Yeah. It's this ongoing challenge of self-management and being able to, I think, what's the term? The term is delay gratification. The problem is one of the problems is that I can eat. Do you know what I could eat right now? I could inhale like a fucking champion. If you went and got me a white bread roll from the bakery, just a shit bread roll, just white, mm-hmm. and then some soft butter, I would butter that both sides. 
it's got to be a squishy, not a crunchy bread roll, squishy with squishy, like, you know, you could just scrunch it up in your hand into a little ball, <laughs> yeah. lots of butter, and then a packet of fresh cheese twisties. Oh, yeah, come on, <laughs> brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah, we used to do that when I was oh, a kid too. Oh, come on. Can I get an amen? Mm. And then amen. I would just, I would sprawl those little <laughs> motherfuckers in that roll. This is what I used to do when I was jumbo. This is how I became jumbo. This was part of my evolution. Still not that unhappy about it or not that, you know, sad about it because the joy. I could make that right now and inhale it. And it's like, because I think I'm on a level, probably not the right term, but a food addict, I can still like fantasize. I'm not going to do it, but I, I know that if I ate that, God, I'd be happy for about 90 seconds. Yeah. I'll be so happy. <laughs> Fuck, I'll be happy, you know. Then I'd be sad and then I'd hate myself, you know, the cycle, yeah, the cycle of me. But it's so funny that that we can have those triggers. And, you know, and the thing is, and I had this, I've had this conversation many times, but here's the conversation. It's like what people kind of do is they go, well, if I eat the two pies and the sausage roll and the chocolate Big M and the pineapple donut, I'm going to have instant pleasure. But if I don't eat it and I have a fucking salad, I'm not going to have instant weight loss. So yeah. I'll eat all that shit that's amazing and then I'll start tomorrow. Yeah. And then, well, it's they do both. then it's 2025, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Or they do both. Like they'll, you know, follow it up to nurture the un- uncomfortable, guilty feeling. They'll even add a salad on top, which I mean is, is great. But it's just adding energy to the system at that point. And it's like we're in this cycle of like, oh, I ate a salad like on Wednesday, so should be right. I don't think you understand the average person, Maddie. <laughs> I've never met fucking anyone who's followed a big pig out with a fucking salad. I've like, spoken to many clients that have done that as a, as a response to their guilt or their self-sabotage. That is trying, trying to do the right thing, yeah. You know what I would have had in response? More pineapple donuts. That's what I would have had. <laughs> well, there's plenty of that. <laughs> uh, mate, how do people find you and follow you and connect with you and do some work with you? So podcast is called How to Not Get Sick and Die, so come and hang out there. I still love that. MattyLansdown.com, new website's just up, which is really cool. And if you're a mother and you're wanting to get healthy, we have a Facebook group called the Busy Mums Collective. Yeah, awesome, mate. You're a gun. You're a uh, you're a regular now. You're our resident nutritionist. We love you being (laughs) part of the team that you don't get paid for. You're welcome. And uh, I love. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.